Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, George Miranda, at GMiranda23 on Twitter. Today's episode was recorded during the PagerDuty Summit in 2019. I got a chance to speak to Bruce Wong, Director of Engineering at Stitch Fix. Bruce and I were able to collaborate on running a chaos engineering workshop where we spent an hour introducing a ballroom full of people to practical ways of getting started down the path of intentionally introducing failures into production systems. Bruce and I had just finished running that workshop when we sat down for this chat. Hey, Bruce, how's it going? Hey, George, pretty good. So why don't you start us off by telling a little bit about yourself and uh, give us an intro to who you are. Yeah, so uh, my name is Bruce Wong. I'm a director of engineering at Stitch Fix, uh, but I also like to say I'm an engineer and a developer at heart still. So you do a lot more than that, right? You are not just at Stitch Fix. You're part of a number of boards. You're part of our board as well. Yeah, so I, I advise a lot of different companies. I like to consider myself as an active member of our community, so attending various conferences like this one, as well as talking and networking uh, about all these ver- all various topics, including chaos engineering. So I think you're uh, maybe being uh, a, a little modest. Tell us a little bit about your big claim to fame. Yeah, so my claim to fame is coining the term chaos engineering. I did it years ago when I was at Netflix, and I had inherited a, the reliability effort across the company, and part of me was like, okay, looking at how do we do this? How do we go from three nines to four nines? How do we incentivize teams? How do we get this done uh, without, a, without a lot of operations engineers? And so one of the the strategies we, I came up with was, was that of chaos engineering. We had already had Chaos Monkey. We already were doing a lot of the practices. But the thing that I came up with was like, okay, let's actually create a team, a strategy, and a vision around this. Uh, and let's double down on what we had already started. Um, and so, you know, in that fashion, wrote a blog post, introduced the term Chaos Engineering, introduced the term Chaos Engineer. Uh, and then it was off to the races from there. And so for our audience, can you break that down a little bit? Like, what exactly is chaos engineering? How do you wrap that up? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of different resources on chaos engineering. Google search it. There's a, there's a lot of different definitions out there. Some are some academic in nature. Some are very practical in nature. The way that I would summarize it is this is being proactive in our, in our chance to validate our resilience design. This is finding out about how well our systems are architected at 3 p.m. instead of 3 a.m., I like to say. And so we intentionally introduce failures into production in a controlled way in order to make our systems a little more resilient. Is that fair? That's fair. Controlled and proactive is, is, is how I would say it. Awesome. And on that note, what we just did, which thank you so much for the suggestion, we had an entire workshop at PagerDuty Summit that was inspired by a practice that you gave to us, which I think is absolutely amazing. We ran some tabletop thought experiments 
as a way to introduce chaos engineering, maybe de- demystify it a little bit, and hopefully to give attendees a way to try this with your teams. So can you tell us a little bit more about how those came about or what they are? Yeah, so after after my run at Netflix, um, it was a great run. I learned a lot of things. I played a lot of different roles. I was there for a good four and a half years. After that, I, I had this notion of chaos engineering. It was uh, very successful and impactful for Netflix. And at the next company I was at, which was called Twilio, which is an API com- cloud communications API company, there was an open question to me. It was, uh, can I apply chaos engineering here? It's a different set of products, different set of people, different set of challenges. And But that was like, uh, the thing in the back of my head was like, is this practice, is this actually transferable beyond Netflix or not? Uh, and so I got to try that out of Twilio. Um, and so from that, that's where I came up with like, okay, the best way to get started is really getting started with the culture and the mindset. And that's where getting started at Twilio and then later Stitch Fix, um, I utilize a tabletop with, you know, a zero tech, I, like, I call it zero tech uh, tabletops because I don't want laptops. I don't want uh, distractions and excuses of why we can't get started. And so I run these tabletop exercises uh, that are a lot of Q&A. There's a whiteboard, there's a drawing, we draw the architecture. We talk about how we're, what our detection strategy is. We talk about resilience. And we talk about those trade-offs. Um, and then we talk about, well, this part fails. What happens? What do we think should happen? Uh, and that's, that's the start to change that mindset. And then from there, it's very easy to build on the intentional failures and actually causing those failures in our systems because we already have that mindset of like, what could go wrong and how do we anticipate that? I love that. I think that's one of the things that I really loved about the things that you said today, right? Which is, it's a lot about figuring out how we get our teams to shift into the mindset of introducing these failures. And I got to tell you, the common critique that I hear whenever we say the term chaos engineering is, oh, well, there's plenty of chaos in my stack already. Ha ha, right? I don't need to engineer more of it. But I think really what we're talking about is uh, figuring out how you don't really introduce chaos, right? You are purposefully breaking things in a controlled way so that you can learn from it. And that's a hard sell, right? That's a really hard thing to get people on board with. But uh, again, right, I think one of the, the critiques that I hear is uh, our systems aren't ready for that, right? So how do you address that? What do you do about that? Yeah, so first off, uh, it depends on who I'm talking to. Um, and then second off, you know, I, I, I look at it as like, well, to that, that, that point, our systems are already chaotic enough as it is. It's like, well, if we're not ready for this, then are we really ready for production? Um, and ready or not, you know, failure will happen. And so again, it's not whether, it's not an if, it's not whether or not failure happens, it's when it happens and it's whether or not it's on our terms or not our terms. And so, you know, given the example of a server or instance or EC2 instance or whatever it is, a unit of deployment, unit of server goes down, right? That happens all the time and people would argue, well, why do I need to introduce that? It's like, well, if I have the fix in place and I have the resilience to that, what do I want to wait for it to randomly happen or would I rather get that feedback loop that it works now? 
or that feedback loop that it doesn't work now, right? And so the choice really is 3 p.m. or 3 a.m. And the choice is controlled or uncontrolled. And that's really the choice. You cannot opt out of like, well, I just don't want things to fail because that's just an inherent part of distributed systems, part of networks, and part of our technology. I love what you just said. So I have a big background in emergency response. And as emergency responders, one of the things that we realize is that, yes, failure is inevitable. And you never know what those failures are going to be. But the way that you deal with it is by purposefully going through what you know the failure modes are going to be, right? And like, what are the most likely or most critical things that are going to create the most damage and practice those, right? Try to understand what's going to happen in those modes and start there, right? And so when I think about managing a production stack, how do you start to tackle that, right? What do you do with your teams to figure out what are the big impact items? And then my follow-up to that would be, if it's such a big impact item, how do you make management okay with the fact that you're going to fail this thing you know causes a ton of collateral damage? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things. Starting small is the most important thing, right? Don't simulate US East going down first. Like, that's probably a little bit big. Like, start with an instance, perhaps. That's a much smaller surface and much easier exercise. And it's there's not much convincing that has to go there because, like, the odds of an instance going down are extremely high compared to that of uh, an entire region going down, right? So, so start small, start with the likely, right? And then build from there. So like, okay, the instance goes down. Now let's try a zone or let's try a whole service. And, you know, the other thing that I like to say is outages are opportunities. And we all have experienced outages. We've all experienced a cloud provider outage that impacts something, Right. Those are the those are the best opportunities because it's like it allows us to take a look and be introspective about well what are the things in our control that we can do about this right and a lot of times there was a reason we wanted to use a third party provider in the first place um, but there are still things that we can do around that as part of that decision and owning that decision and what that means for us and so so I think that's that's the thing I would say is like. If you wait long enough by not doing this, an outage will happen eventually. And like that is the perfect time because that is top of mind. Because if an outage is large enough and it happens, an executive is very interested because there's probably a cost to that outage. Like here's what the, the cost to our business is because of said provider outage. And then, you know, that's top of mind. So you can talk about like, well, here's some of the things that we could do to mitigate that, to make the cost of that go down to make the cost of it nullified completely, right? Like, that's the perfect time to talk about those things. It's true. I think those types of outages you know are going to happen, especially when you rely on third-party services. I think that's a fairly obvious place to start. It feels like something that's beyond your control. Um, I think my concern or one of the things I often hear is, you know, those services we tend to rely on more and more increasingly, Right. Very few services are entirely within our control. You know, we've got a cloud provider running our infrastructure. We're running some SaaS services on top. There's so much abstraction that we rely on. How do you start even prioritizing that? How do you figure out, like, which one is an obvious choice? You know, I think it's it depends on a lot of different situations. But I usually start with the things that you have most control over. And that is our code. Software bugs are part of software development, Right. 
Uh, we can try our best to avoid bugs, but they still make their way into production. That's why outages happen. And, and so if that's the place that we can start and we have the most control over, that's a perfect place to start of like, okay, we wrote the dependency into our code, right? That dependency, those dependencies don't end up there magically. Like we wrote those dependencies there. And when those dependencies go down because we wrote the code, now we actually can write code around what should happen or should not happen. So there's a choice. When some dependency goes down, whether internal or external, should we display a 500 to the user or not? Probably not. Okay, so then what do we do instead? How do we think about, think through that experience and so forth? Uh, furthermore, like I also say, start with instrumentation. Do you have the monitoring and telemetry to see failure when it happens? And if you don't, well, let's get started there. So, and those, those are very easy to get started. Those are very valuable to get started. The, the worst time to find out that I don't have the right logging is the actual outage. <laughs> so True. The best time to find out that I don't have the log that I need for that outage is 3 p.m. during the chaos engineering exercise. That, oh, it would be really useful if I had this in the logs or be really useful if I had this metric tagged by this dimension. I'd rather find that out not during an actual outage. I'd much rather find that out on a regular, normal day thing that I have full control over. One of the things that I love about the tabletop thought exercises that we were doing is that there were instances where we could flesh out some of these things before we touched any code. You know, one of the topics we started with was telemetry, right? If we are going to introduce a failure into production, how do we know it's actually happening? And as I stood there listening to one of the tables, they started talking about metrics and dashboards. And one of the concerns that immediately came up was, well, do the right people have access to those dashboards, right? In my organization, you know, you've got very limited views and access control over, you know, who sees what. And in a failure scenario where you might involve multiple service owners and multiple teams, just thinking about who is even able to access those systems, you're right. You know, you don't have to wait until this outage happens in production. You don't even have to wait until the chaos exercise happens for real, right? You can sit and think through those things with your teams. Absolutely. And as a follow-up to that, I would say, so when is the right time to take a failure, right? We've talked about, you know, starting small and fail the instance, maybe fail our region. When do you know that you're ready to try it for real? Yeah. So I actually would say the question to ask is, when's the time that you want to start writing more resilient software? That's probably today. And, and that's what I mean by, like, it, it's about getting started. And, and so, like... You know, one of the things that I instituted at Twilio was part of onboarding. We on, you know, we were hiring, just like everyone else. Hiring is hard, but you get someone. You get someone new to your company and to your team, and of course, they have to carry the pager too. That was the first part of onboarding was chaos engineering, because yeah, I want to find out that they don't have access to the dashboards, or they do have access, but they don't know what the metrics actually mean, and so like. There's all of that learning that, like, you could sit down and have someone explain all these things, or you could sit down and actually simulate a failure that you can see in your dashboards and then explain it in, in that kind of context. And I think those muscles that you build of, like, okay, this is the shape. This is the shape of what that looks like on my dashboard. This is the dashboard, and this is the difference between this one and this one. I have access or I don't have access. 
all things you absolutely want to learn, not at 3 a.m. in the morning. And so that's, I, you know, I integrated that as part of onboarding any new employee to, to a team because that's critical, critical information that you want to have before your first time on call. Yeah, and I think one of the things that can easily get uncovered as well is just because you have metrics, it doesn't mean that people understand what those metrics are or what the baseline is, right? Or what is abnormal behavior. Right. And it's much easier when it's a controlled exercise in the middle of the afternoon, no customers actually impacted, that, yeah, I can go into my code and I can see exactly what is happening and exactly what that metric means. I can't tell you how many times that, you know, the team, the team itself learns together because, you know, I love seeing teams debate like, no, that metric means this. No, I don't think so. That me- metric means something else. And then they open GitHub and look at the code and uh, the code doesn't lie. Yeah. Right. And everyone rises together and has a shared under a better shared understanding of the important operational aspects uh, of our software. The interesting thing that I, I, that I say is fascinating when you do this often enough, like my team's behavior, behavior is predictable and behave people, humans adapt. And it only took, it literally only took three weeks doing this once a week for three weeks where all of the developers on the team, including the most junior developers, whatever they were developing, they knew that I was going to break it every single week at the, at the chaos engineering meeting. Right. And so what I noticed that happened within three weeks for everyone from our most seasoned senior engineer to our most junior engineer out of college, all of a sudden our code started having, it was always instrumented beforehand. There was never a a catch there. We always had adequate logging. We always had resilient code out the gate the first time out. It wasn't an afterthought because we had to change that mindset. And the funny thing is they were just doing it at first to prepare for the for the game day. Right. And then it clicked with them. They're like, well, our system is rock solid, right? Because it's like, yeah, because we're actually doing this. And so that's the most fascinating thing is when you see that mind shift change on a team that the code is just that much better and the PRs are that much higher quality because we never are missing instrumentation. We always have resilience. We always have fallbacks for everything that we introduce that's when you know that you've really changed how a team is thinking about this. Now, the funnest part of doing all of this in my career is those moments when the real outage happens. When you're the team and the big outage happens and you're the team that's actually celebrating, you're celebrating because, hey, this thing failed exactly as we planned and exactly as designed and there's nothing for like there's nothing that happens and there's nothing for us to do. We're just sitting back watching the show. Yeah, being able to celebrate those failures, I think, is absolutely important. Not to branch in a different direction, but one of the takeaways from the postmortem workshop that we did uh, earlier in the week was uh, a really good conversation that I had with folks around doing learnings around wins. A situation where a failure mode happened exactly as you expected, and the right thing happened. There was no incident. But taking time to review that and learn from it is still valuable. So let me ask you, the things that you learn in these incidents, you know, in these chaos engineering exercises where you're intentionally introducing these failures, how do you make sure that some of the work that falls out of that, right? I mean, your team start 
instrumenting their code better, right? You you start building some of these mechanisms in, but inevitably, you always find some other thing you didn't think about, right? And that's extra work that was unplanned. Yeah. So how do you deal with making sure that that actually enters the work stream and something happens? I mean, I think it depends on the different teams, but like for most of my teams, we practice a lot of the standard agile ceremonies. So we do sprint planning. The key that I figured, the first time I did this, I did sprint planning and then the chaos engineering exercise. And then I realized, nope, that's the wrong order. Because after the chaos engineering exercise, there was all these things that we wanted to do, but we had just done sprint planning. So then the next week, we flipped them. And we always, 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 always did the chaos engineering exercise. And then we did sprint planning. And so it just naturally flowed from well, what did we learn and what do we want to do in light of the experiments and, and exercises that we did? And then it was like, well, let's start prioritizing those first because we're now we're in sprint planning. The very next meeting was sprint planning, right? And so that broke us into a cadence in this, it, like it literally was integrated into our weekly sprint cadence. And so it was top of mind. And you just knew that was the order we did it. And we always did chaos engineering first and then we did sprints right after that. That's an awesome, that's a really great virtuous cycle, right? Identify those problems and just work them right in. So I think that's a really good overview and tour of chaos engineering principles. Do you have any parting advice for listeners that are thinking about how they introduce this in their organization and how they can get started? Yeah, I think my parting advice is to summarize kind of the things I said is like, remember to start small. Change starts with one person, then one team. You don't need fancy tooling. You need three lines of code, right? Like if my user failed his call, start really, really, really small. Start really, really simple and then expand from there. Don't try to do a company-wide change overnight. Like get those small wins, get that validation, build those muscles, build that language on how to talk about these things. And start really, 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 really small. And then talk about it. Talk about those successes. And, you know, those wins will go from like, oh, like, we have, we lowered our error rate. And that's great. And we did this through this mechanism. Uh, and then you'll get some of those big ones because failure is inevitable and outages happen. And, you know, you'll be that team. You'll be that team that the big outage happened and your systems were fine. Everything failed as planned, as designed, with perfect visibility. And those are the those are the great moments that you get to talk about. And when when you get to have one of those stories, you'd be surprised how fast your boss or your executive will will catch that, and then start pointing other teams to be like you. And then you have change. I love it. I think that's a great way to prepare for the disasters we know are inevitable. A great way to approach that and make it something that we can easily start practicing. So thanks, Bruce. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for inspiring the workshop. And for the folks listening at home, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Page It to the Limit. This is George Miranda wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter 
at page it to the limit using the number two. That's at page it to the limit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.